And when it came time to being like junior, senior year of high school, um, that's when I really became interested in architecture. And I thought, this is it. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go. Really, I wanted to go to the University of Cincinnati very badly. I wanted to go there. So I applied and did not get into school there. And my <laughs> second choice was Ball State. So I came to Ball State. Not super excited about it. Didn't like Muncie. Thought Ball State was the party school. Applied to the architecture program at Ball State. Did not get in there either. When I did find out that I wasn't accepted at the architecture program, I was like, what the heck, God? Like, you gave me all these talents and all these things that I love about houses and designing homes. And now you're going to, like, pull that out for me too and tell me that I shouldn't do that. I think at the time I was like, okay, God, that means planning is it. That is what you're saying to me. You're, you're like telling me architecture isn't it, but planning is. So I'm going to chase after that and trust that. And that's what I did. Technically my senior year, I like ended in December and I was not ready to leave. I had grown to love Muncie a lot. I'd really gotten involved here and really loved working with 180. Um, and was just kind of sad to think like, oh, I have to leave. And I remember applying for a job and going into my roommate's room at the time and just sitting on her bed and my two best friends were there and I was just crying because I, I think it was the first time I realized like I might leave Muncie, I might move away. And that was hard. But choosing to stay meant I had to almost lay aside my pride. I did. I had to lay down my pride because I had, I'm sure I had professors and classmates and my parents and maybe even their friends and friends who were like, what? You're going to stay in Muncie where you didn't really want to be in, be at all? Um, and then also just like knowing that was harder for me. And I think that's why I chose it. Taking the risk as an area of growth I guess you could say, like, oh, well, I don't know why, but if this seems harder, then maybe I need to do it. Like, sometimes the harder thing is the better option. And I think that's the biggest thing I've learned about being in Muncie is, like, it's not, it, life doesn't have to be extravagant to be enjoyable and to love what you're doing and to be satisfied in Christ, honestly. Like, there's peace in that. I don't know. I think like the whole architecture thing was me trying to do it on my own. Like I had it planned out and then that all crumbled and I was like, what do I do now? Who am I? And then God was like, well, you're actually mine. And I've got a much better plan. And yeah, you feel weak, but that's when I want to use you the most. So. morning church or oh, you want to clap for Mary she's great we love Mary she's so special welcome everyone to Union Chapel we're so glad you're here today this is the day the Lord has made we're rejoicing and glad in it wasn't the worship great this morning wasn't that helpful and encouraging I know you found it that way as Pastor Glenn mentioned on the announcement portion, uh, we are starting a new series today on grace. Now, that may not sound 
particularly inspiring or invigorating to you, but I promise this is a most relevant subject for us, not only for people who follow Jesus, but for these times in which we're living. And I hope it'll be uh, meaningful to you and add value. I just wanted to mention Kyle Eidelman, who is a uh, very significant pastor in America right now, and uh, he has done some beautiful work on the subject of grace, and we've taken some cues from his work uh, for this series and wanted to give him kudos for that. So today we uh, launched this series entitled, Grace is Greater Than Your Guilt. And I've chosen as our text from the New Testament book of Romans, Romans chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans 5, and I'm going to read verses 12 to 17. Thanks so much uh, for your interest in that. And our custom, of course, is to stand to hear God's word. So as you're able to do that, thank you for standing. Now, you should know that the book of Romans is the work of the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome, and it is a theological treatise. It's principally written to to build a case for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has a lot of theological work in it, and this is a case in point. And now we find in this category, death through Adam, life found through Jesus Christ, and and this contrast. So verse 12, therefore... Just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, to be sure sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, again, Adam, Death reigned through that one man. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? And may God inspire and instruct us today through his word. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Every year, uh, there are words which uh, are created in the English language, become part of the vernacular, and are added to the dictionary. And this year is no different. Here's a few of those. Let me just uh, mention them to you, see if you've heard them. One is phonesia, P-H-O-N-E, phone, S-I-A, phonesia. Let me tell you what it means. It's the act of dialing a phone number and forgetting who you were calling just as they answer. They say hello, and you go, ah, who is this? And they say, what do you mean, who is it? You called me. <laughs> and you say, well, I have phonesia. <laughs> I don't remember who I was calling. That can happen. Another word is disconfect, D-I-S, and then confect, C-O-N-F-E-C-T, disconfect. Uh, it's the attempt to sterilize a piece of candy you dropped on the floor by blowing on it, <laughs> which is actually a very effective way to sanitize candy that you've dropped. It, it, it works every time. Just blow it off and it'll be fine. The, the, the next word is blame storming. This is a very, very popular word in today's culture. Even if folks don't use the word, they practice it. 
uh, every day, every hour of every day, it seems, people pointing a finger at each other, blamestorming. Now, of course, we know what brainstorming is. That's when a group of folks get around and, and try to solve a problem. Blamestorming is sitting in a group and discussing who's responsible for, for all the problems rather than trying to solve them. Blamestorming. Let me ask you this question. How many of you have ever eaten Kellogg cornflakes? Kellogg's cornflakes. I've eaten them. How many of you have eaten them recently? Kellogg's cornflakes. Not as many. Kellogg's actually figured this out, that most people in their life have tried Kellogg's cornflakes, but they haven't had them for a long time. Most people haven't. So they came up with this one phrase slogan this year. Listen to it. Kellogg's cornflakes. Taste them again for the first time. Taste them again for the first time. Somebody ought to get paid. Somebody ought to get paid for that. that that's brilliant. That's really good. And so it's stimulating people to consider it. Could I, you know, I'm talking to mostly a bunch of Christians. Could I just encourage you to consider grace again for the first time? If I were to ask you, do you know what grace means? You say, oh, yeah, I think I got an idea about that. Could I just challenge you to kind of erase the slate and open your mind and try to hear again for the first time the concept of grace in these next handful of weeks. I think it will matter to you. Look on the screen at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. See to it that you don't miss the grace of God. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. The grace of God, very, very important. And the reason for this is because much of our world is absent of God's grace. Heck, most of the church misses the point of God's grace. When it's missed, when it's not present, when it's removed, when it's replaced, when there are cheap substitutes given for grace, let me tell you what happens. The world turns toxic. Relationships turn toxic. Your, your faith turns toxic. Life turns toxic absent this most critical issue of grace. Now, you can't talk about the grace of God without also measuring it against the problem. I mean, God's grace is there as an antidote to a serious problem. And the serious problem is what the Bible calls sin. So you can't talk about grace unless you first understand, lay a foundation of what it's counteracting. And that is the problem of sin. Now, the Bible talks about sin as a problem. Romans 3.23 says, Everyone has sinned and falls short of God's best, God's glorious ideal. Everyone. So all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, this is clear. So when you ask an individual, do you realize that you've sinned, you've fallen short, because everyone has, we might try to nuance that. We might try to rationalize that a bit. We say, well, you know, I know, I know I'm a sinner, but I'm, uh, you know, I haven't sinned, sinned. I mean, if you watch reality TV recently, I mean, those folks, now, now they know how to sin, right? Compared to that, I'm not so bad. And relative to most people I know, I'm pretty good. And so, you know, I, I know I've sinned, but, you know, it can't be that bad. But the Bible discusses sin. And he talks about 
sin as a sickness or like a virus that has perpetrated the human race. And grace is then offered as the cure, as the antidote. But that means nothing to people who don't recognize the problem, the sickness, the issue of sin. So there's a diagnosis, we've already heard that, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now the Bible also gives us a prognosis. Look on the screen at Romans chapter 6, verse 23. And it simply says, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. This is the consequence of this virus, this disease called sin. Now we know that COVID, COVID has killed uh, just under a million people in the world. And it's a very serious bug. It's a nasty bug. We all know that. That's why we're taking all these precautions. And uh, the good news is that relative to the number of people who've been infected with COVID, the number of, of morbidity, the number of people who are dying of COVID is getting lower and lower on a percentage basis. That's good. We, we're learning more about this bug and how to treat it. And the therapies are working much, much better now. So that's all good. To contrast it with 1918, the last global pandemic was the Spanish flu and over 30 million people died around the world of the Spanish flu in 1918. And again, we're just under a million people globally now with COVID. But we're all sensitive to it and we're aware that it, it perpetuates and we've got, we have to remain vigilant and, and so we are. Uh, but relative to the number of people who get infected, the morbid, morbidities are going down. Let's contrast that with the virus called sin. Sin causes death 100% of the time, 100%. Everybody who gets it dies. The wages of sin is death. If there was a virus loose in the world right now and everybody who contracted it died, the world would be upside down. So we must take seriously what the Bible teaches about this chronic, inherent problem in the human race called sin. And we know who patient zero was with this virus called sin. His, we know his name. There was a guy named Adam. Look at verse 12 from our text on the screen with me. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone because everyone sinned. Therefore, everyone has this infection. Everyone has death coming. We've all been tested positive. And so the question we ask today is, what is the antidote? What is the vaccine? What is the cure for this disease, this virus called sin? The answer is grace. It's grace. Now, if you have your outline in front of you, if you're following the outline, here's the first idea. Grace is greater than your sin. Grace is greater than your sin. Look at verse 15 on the screen with me. For the sin of one man, Adam, brought death to many, but even greater, see the word greater there? Even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. So here's what we know. Whatever, whatever it is, anything, everything, whatever you can imagine in your mind, whatever mistake that you've made, the thing you most regret in your entire life, whatever season in your life that you would like to pretend never happened, think of the worst of the worst. Grace is greater than that. 
Think of, think of the most horrible depth of despair, depth of darkness, the, the most personal disappointment, the most horrible weight that's ever come upon you because of some decision or choice or activity that you've made in your life. Grace is greater than that. Think, think of the most horrible thing that anyone anywhere in any time has ever done. Imagine it. Grace is greater. Grace is greater than that because grace is greater than your sin. And when we understand the greatness of grace, it makes all the difference. It will set us free. It will give us hope. It will give us a sense of meaning, a sense of direction, a sense of purpose in our lives because grace is great than any sin. It comes our way. Look at verse 16. The result of God's gracious gift. Here's a grace-filled gift. It's very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God. Isn't that great? Here, now, verse 17, next verse. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace. <laughs> and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it. Are you starting to get it? Are you you seeing it? Don't miss this. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. There's all kinds of things you can miss. You You can miss all kinds of nuanced realities of your relationship with God or your pursuit of God or your worship of God, the whole God life, the whole God orientation, the whole God worldview. You can miss all kinds of things in the context of that that practice and and that journey. But don't miss grace. Don't miss it because it's so important. It's so huge. It makes you right with God. It gives you a new life. It gives you a second chance. But here's what happens to us. Especially this happens to folks who want to follow God and want to live a God life. And it happens all the time. and, And it's like there's a temptation for us to fall into it. And here's what happens. When you, when you try to live the God life without grace, there's a consequence to that. You can define it in one word. And the word is religion. Religion. Now, I'm going to say some things right now that you probably didn't expect to hear or probably didn't expect to hear from me about religion. I don't like religion. I don't. I don't like organized religion. Now, I'm part of an organized religious denomination. So I understand, you know, movements, organisms need structure and systems and that sort of thing. I mean, you have to organize in order to stabilize and be able to move forward. I get it. Every living thing has to have some structure. I got it. But having said that, I don't like organized religion much. And I can tell you, tell you this without equivocation, without qualification, I don't like religious people at all. I don't like them. I'd much rather hang out with a bunch of sinners than a bunch of religious people. Here's how we can define religion. Religion is man's attempt to earn God's favor by adhering to rules and regulations. This is the idea that you can say to yourself, I can be good enough to balance the scales. My religious good deeds, my religious acts can be enough 
that the equation will work in my favor. The scales will tip toward me. My religion, my rule keeping, my rituals, my morality, my external religious practices, all of that combined is greater than my sin. This happens to people all the time, all over the world, in all kinds of contexts. People imagine that if I just do enough right, enough good in a religious way, that that will counteract my biggest problem, this virus I carry called sin, a deadly virus. It kills everybody 100% of the time. And I tell myself if I can just measure up to whatever standards, rules, rituals, regulations that the religion requires, that will satisfy the problem of my sin. Here's, here's the only issue. It doesn't work. Because there's only one thing greater than sin. It's called grace. Grace is greater than sin. Not your goodness, not your works, not the exercise of your religion. None of that comes close to measuring up against sin. Only grace is greater than sin. I'm doing some preaching now. Let me try to contrast it this way by comparing and contrasting uh, religion versus grace. For example, the key word in religion is do. It's what you do to earn your way by the rituals and the regulations and the rules. It's what you do. But grace is based on what has been done for us. Not what we do, but rather what has been done for us by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's grace. The focus of religion, of course, is outward. This is why Jesus was constantly at odds with religious leaders of his day. He said, look, your words are right, but your heart is far from me. You say the right words, but it doesn't matter because it's, it's not real to you. He said, on the outside, you look good. You're all polished up. But on the inside, you're corrupt. And so religion focuses on the outward, whereas grace is focused on the inward, focused on the heart, focused on real transformation. You see, human beings change from the inside out, not from the outside in. Is the argument, can you legislate morality? Well, you can try, but you can't make people. Uh-uh. The only way you, you, you transform behavior in a human being is to change the inside of the person, and that will manifest on the outside. So the focus of grace is inward. The foundation of religion, follow it now, is rules. What typical ha- typically happens is, not only do we have a, s- a set of established rules, but then folks come along and add to the rules. So you've got this this, this legalistic kind of culture. Some of you were raised in that kind of culture. I mean, you just couldn't turn around without doing something wrong. And it doesn't work. It only damages. But that's what religion does. It's, it's based on rules. Grace, on the other hand, is based on relationships. A relationship with God that's now been restored through the work of Jesus Christ. The motivation for religion is shame. If I can make you feel guilty, make you feel ashamed, then I can control your behavior, or so I think. And so religion goes that way. On the other hand, the motivation for grace is gratitude. See, I recognize what God has done for me through Jesus Christ, and that makes me thankful. I'm grateful for what he's done. And as a result of that, I have a motivation to live a holy life, an honorable life. Because of what God has done, I'm grateful for that, and I want to please him. 
as a response to that gratitude. Religion leaves you feeling fearful and frustrated. You know, I'm afraid if I don't measure up, don't follow all the rules all the time, I'm going to be in trouble. You know, God's up there with a big hammer, and every time he sees me step out of line, he cracks me with it. And folks actually believe this. They're raised in religious environments where that's true. And so fear and frustration results. These are the emotions produced by religion that because I'm not measuring up, I'm afraid I'm in trouble or every time I fail, it just makes me frustrated because I'm really trying to do the right thing, but I just can't manage to do it. And these are the emotions created by it. Grace, on the other hand, gives you the feeling of freedom. I'm free. I'm free to be myself. I'm free to express myself. I'm free to be the person God made me to be. I don't, I don't look over my shoulder all the time wondering if God's ready to pound me because I have received his favor, his love, his forgiveness through grace. Grace is greater than sin, not the way I behave and perform. Yeah. And so, so here's the outcome of religion. It's either pride I'm a, good, I'm a good little girl, I'm a good little boy, I'm self-righteous about it, I'm better than you, and I'm really important. And so pride results, or guilt results. I'm a bad person, I can't keep the rules, I try my best, but, so I feel bad, I feel guilty for it. So this is the outcome of religion. But the outcome of grace is love. I'm free to love God, I'm free to love others, I'm free to love myself. And it's a powerful thing. Now, here's something that I want to just say to you right now, because I, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to help you see grace in a clearer light. Here's something that I know it to be true. I can teach you, I, maybe you'll leave here today and go, that's the clearest, most helpful teaching on grace I've ever heard. That's just so helpful. It's so per- and so I better understand. Okay, here's the problem. You can understand grace the best you can in your mind. But ultimately, the only way that you can truly understand grace, listen to me, is to experience it. You have to experience it. If you don't experience God's grace, you'll never understand it. You'll never get it. Because it's so wonderful, it is so profound, it is so glorious. It is, it, is so, it, is, it is so godly. It is so fantastic that the only way to really comprehend it, understand it, is to experience it. I invite you today to experience God's grace because you can. It's a gift. You say, what do I have to do? Receive it. I mean, no, what do I have to do? No, now you're back to that religious thing. I have to do anything. Just receive it. Well, there's, that's too easy. I mean, there's got to be a catch. There's no catch. Well, there's got to be bait and switch. I mean, God sucks us in with, you know, this talk about it's all free, and then, you know, he puts you to work. To, gets you back to the toe in the line. No. No, no. No, sir. There's no catch. There's no bait and switch. There's none of that. This is just straightforward. The only way that you can understand, comprehend grace is to receive it and to experience it. That's it. In John chapter 8, there's a beautiful story here. Jesus is teaching uh, in the early morning, and there's a big crowd there. 
And we don't know what he's teaching on. We just know it's early in the morning and there's a big crowd. If you knew Jesus was teaching somewhere in Muncie this morning, how many of you would go? Get up and go early. I'd get up and go. That would be fantastic. So Jesus is teaching in this big crowd and suddenly it gets disrupted because this angry mob comes into the scene. And now no one's paying attention to Jesus anymore and they're dragging along a woman, this angry mob. And she is... She is wearing nothing more than a bed sheet. She has literally been dragged out of a bed of adultery. They drag her to Jesus and throw her onto the ground and say, we have caught this woman in the very act of adultery. The law says that we should stone her, stone her to death. What do you say we do? That's a pretty dramatic moment. Now, let's just hit pause on that story just for a second. We're pause. If she was caught in bed committing adultery, wouldn't there be another person in the bed? Why, why does this guy get a pass? Anyway, I had to get that off my chest. So, so I know. Jesus bends down. He knows they're trying to trick him, trying to catch him. So he bends down on the ground and he starts writing in the dirt. We don't know what he's writing. This has been left to speculation over the years. Lots of speculation. The one that I like the best, well, we don't know. One I like the best is that he starts writing down and listing the sins of the people accusing this woman. Pride, (laughs) you know, lust, whatever. That would be fun if that were the case. But we don't know. Maybe he's just doodling. So he raises his head and he looks at these accusers of this woman. And he simply says, let the one who is among you without sin cast the first stone. So those of you who are here who know the rules and have kept all the rules all the time, never failed, not once, with all the regs, you cast the first stone. And the Bible says slowly but surely, people started dropping their stones and walking away. Finally, it's just the woman and Jesus. And he says to her, where are your accusers? She said, they're all gone. And he says to her, well, neither do I condemn you. And the reason that Jesus says this to her is because He's full of grace. He's the grace-filled God. He knows this woman. You know, Jesus is a God-man. He's the pre-existent, co-eternal word of God. This is God who put on an earth suit. He's there. And here he is. He knows this woman. He knows this woman from the foundations of the world. He knows He knows this woman from her mother's womb. He knows every detail of her life. And he says to her, neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. And here's a woman who's filled with guilt. She's filled with sin. She's been caught in the very act. Uh, She's been pulled from the very bed of her sin. And now her secret is found out. It's, It's the worst day of her life until she encounters God in his grace. And the worst day of her life becomes 
the best day of her life. The best day. Because in her brokenness, she meets Jesus. Now here's what she learns about grace. That grace is not only greater than your sin, but this is point two on your outline, that grace is greater than your secret. Grace is greater than your secret. I think this, wor- this woman's worst fear was that someone would find out what, her, what she was up to. And now the worst thing has happened. But let me just remind you all that we all live in denial of our sin. We all keep secrets. You do. I do. We all do. There are things about our lives we don't want anyone else to know. We live in denial of our lust. We live in denial of our pride, our greed, our selfishness. We keep secrets from ourselves by comparing ourselves to other people. We keep secrets even from ourselves by justifying what we do or what we've done. And we just don't want anybody to know. And we don't want our secret to be found out. But here's the truth. Your secret is making you sick. You think the worst thing that could ever happen is that your secret be found out, but when it's exposed, you will be met with this beautiful truth, this wonderful reality that God's grace is actually greater than your secret. There's a series of books out called Post Secret. A guy by the name of Frank Warren, listen to what he did. He printed 3,000 postcards, and the postcard says, you're invited to anonymously contribute a secret to a group art project. Reveal anything you want as long as it's true and you've never shared it with anybody. So he handed out these postcards with these instructions, and people started writing down their secrets and then sending them back. You know, it's all anonymous. And sending them back to him. And he published a book of them. And some of them are weird, some of them are funny, some of them are just disturbing. One woman wrote, for example, I think women who don't wear makeup are lazy. What? That's it? Ma'am? That's your big secret? What's the matter with you? Another one said, when I'm mad at my husband, I put boogers in his soup. (laughs) That is not right. That is not right. Don't you even, don't you even think. (laughs) Another one said, I'm afraid of women who wear capri pants. (laughs) All right, I confess that's the one I sent in. (laughs) Others were more upsetting. Every time I get my toenails done, I want to kick the girl doing them in the face. I hate people who include me in group texts. I give decaf to customers who are rude to me. (laughs) Many of the secrets are really sad. For example, I wish my father had forgiven me while he was still alive. Or sometimes I wish that I was blind just so I wouldn't have to look at myself every day in the mirror. My husband doesn't know he's raising his best friend's child. When I sleep with my wife, I feel unfaithful to my lover. 
I haven't spoken to my dad in 10 years and it kills me every day. When I eat, I feel like a failure. I'm only happy when I buy things. The last one in the book, last one, last page, last, last one says, I told all my secrets, now I feel free. When you finally confess and you finally repent, you'll discover this most beautiful thing, that God's grace is greater than your secret. God's grace is greater than your sin. God's grace is greater than your secret. Last point, God's grace is greater than your shame. Back to the woman caught in the very act of adultery. Jesus gives her a second chance. Jesus gives her a brand new start, a fresh start. And Christians sometimes fail at this. And I've mentioned it, but I want, I want to just re-emphasize that this happens to us. There's a, there's a temptation to do this. There's an inclination toward a sense of oughtness. You know, I ought to do better. I ought to be better. I ought to perform better. And so we lose touch with the amazing power, the, the splendid wonder of the influence of grace in our lives. And so while we've received forgiveness by grace, we don't actually live in that same grace day by day. Uh, we continue to feel guilt, continue to feel shame, rather than the joy and the peace that comes with God's grace. And sometimes the church is at fault because we're not so willing to let people be free when they've made certain mistakes. You know, we hold it over their heads and sometimes the church reminds people how bad they've been and it just doesn't work. So my prayer is that all of us will encounter God's grace, that we will experience it in a personal way. Another popular preacher named Matt Chandler, he tells a story about his freshman year in Bible college. He met a young single mom named Kim. He and some friends in the seminary wanted to introduce her to God. So one night, Matt and his friends invited Kim, this young single mom, to come to a Christian concert. And they all went together, and the band stopped playing after the worship set and that sort of thing. And a young man stood up, a preacher, and he began to talk about sex. And right out of the gate, you can tell he's a little angry. He's a little worked up, and he's talking about sexually transmitted diseases. And one of his illustrations is he takes out a rose, single-stem rose, and he holds it up, and he look at this rose. Look how beautiful it is. Look how perfect it is. Look how, how pristine it is. Look how pure it is. Look how fragrant it is. It's just, a, it's just a beautiful thing. And then he tosses it in the crowd and says, now pass that rose around. I want everybody to look at it and touch it. And he, co he goes on, and he... He continues to preach about sex and he's pointing his finger and raising his voice and Matt Chandler looks at his new friend Kim and she's just sitting there because she's had a pretty rough past. Her head is down and she's just feeling it. Near the end of this man's message, he asked for the rose. Throw that rose back up here. I want to see my rose. And he, by the time he gets it back, you can imagine what's happened to it. You know, it's, it's all droopy and half the petals are gone and it's no longer fragrant and, and it's just a mess. And he just says out loud, holding this rose, who would want this? 
Who would want this rose? It's broken down, petals are gone, lost its fragrance, it's been handled. Nobody wants it. Nobody cares about a rose like this. You don't want to be like this rose. Who would want to buy this rose? And Matt Chandler re reports that he had this overwhelming need, desire, impulse to stand up in the middle of that huge crowd of people and just say loud enough for everyone to hear, Jesus wants that rose. Jesus bought that rose. That's the whole point of the gospel, that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. And that whosoever comes to him can be reclaimed and redeemed and made new again and given hope again and given a future again and given life again. Jesus will buy that rose. Jesus wants that rose. Now, friends, for people who are broken, God says, I'll restore you. For, for people who have lost their luster and the beauty of the original design, God wants to bring newness to your life and a new beginning and a second chance and a future hope. And there's a word for all of that, all of that wonder, all of that mystery, all of that hope. And that word is grace. It's grace. Now let's pause and pray about these things. God, this message is for everyone because everyone has sinned. This message is for everyone because you died for everyone. And everyone, when they put their trust in you, can receive this free gift of grace and forgiveness and eternal life. Lord, I know that there are some people within the sound of my voice today in that group of everyone who don't think they need it. And Lord, I pray that you would help them see that they need it the most. So God, would you allow us to soften our hearts? Would you allow us to become aware of our sickness and our sin? Not so that we would leave this service today feeling shame and guilt and condemnation, but so that we would experience your grace, your freedom, and your forgiveness. So that we receive your gift of forgiveness, that we would allow grace then to be the foundation of our lives, the foundation of our faith, the foundation of our future. God, help us to receive and experience your amazing grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. amen. Would you stand with us?